Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight analysis into all the big topics of debate you're talking about in the game of football. I'm Ian McGarry, and as ever, I'm joined by Duncan Castles for this Monday's Transfer Window podcast. We're going to start, of course, with news, as we always like to bring you, keep you abreast of what's happening. And this is, Duncan, one that we've been discussing for a long, long time now, and that is Manchester United's search for a director of football. They seem to have um, a list of candidates uh, as long as uh, any person's laundry or shopping list, but... They appear, at least sources close to the club, um, are indicating they believe they've made some progress with regards to negotiations with former United goalkeeper and current Ajax CEO Edwin van der Sar. Van der Sar is understood to have had uh, talks with Ed Woodward and other representatives of the club regarding the job at Old Trafford. Interestingly, he currently earns around €250,000 in his job as a chief executive at the Johan Cruyff Arena. Um, and Manchester United are offering nearer €1.5 million Euros for him to change job and become DOF uh, for the Old Trafford Club. Van der Sar, however, it's understood, has some reservations. Um, he is keen to further his career, but um, he does... Uh, have some scepticism about the current setup um, at Carrington regarding the fact there are five supposedly heads of recruitment currently operating uh, and also um, has doubts about, or certainly hasn't been given reassurances about his exact remit, nor his authority in terms of finalising transfers. And so that is holding up his decision with regards to making the move from Amsterdam to Manchester. Um, Duncan, this is something that we're kind of becoming uh, very familiar with. Uh, we know that conversations between former players Rio Ferdinand and Darren Fletcher have reflected similar concerns with regards to what Ed Woodward's motivation and indeed his actionable um, agreements would be with regards to any director of football and their mandate. Are we Seeing this just going around in circles and circles, do you think? I mean, or do you, do we genuinely believe that one Van der Sar is probably the best man for the job, or and and as a result, he is most likely to take it? Well, I think we told you in the transfer window podcast um, long before the last transfer window that the, the feeling in football um, from the people who were interested in this job, um, you know, top level technical directors in Europe. Um, some of whom would like to have been interviewed uh, by Woodward and Co for the position and were not even in invited to do so. The feeling was that Woodward wanted to retain control over the transfer market 
um, that we've just uh, had, that they weren't serious about appointing someone who would um, do what a traditional director of football does and be the, the lead figure in recruitment in the way that um, Chiki Bergiristan has done so successfully for Manchester City and been such a part of creating a squad that has um, proved itself to be the best in the Premier League um, and be the lead uh, in terms of making decisions, strategic decisions on recruitment um, and decisions uh, through the organisation of the football department um, for multiple years down the line in terms of setting up a squad that could uh, provide short-term, medium-term and long-term success for the club. Um, the clear uh, indication was that Edward did not want to cede control of transfers to whoever the appointment would be. And, you know, the indications from some of those conversations that have been had with candidates is exactly as you, as you report, that uh, there haven't been guarantees that the person coming in will get that mandate. Um, which is obviously of concern to some of the candidates because the, it then looks as though they are being brought in as a front man, as a figurehead, so that the club can say, well, we have appointed a director of football for the first time. We are taking steps to improve the, the management of the club. Um, but actually, the same people remain with ultimate say over who is bought, where the money is spent in the transfer market, what the contracts are going to be. Um, and you then have effectively a scapegoat if things continue to go wrong. I think of, of the candidates we've heard that there have been discussions with, Edwin van der Sar is a very impressive one in the sense that he has done a excellent job at um, Ajax. He's more experienced than individuals like Rio Ferdinand and, and Darren Fletcher. He's been working in the executive area for some time now. Not specifically as a technical director. Um, so that role um, is with Mark Overmars at Ajax. But um, he would come with a, a degree of experience and, a, and an image, as well as that track record of, of being part of Manchester United's past success, which would make him an attractive um, proposition and one that would be easy, I think, to sell to the supporters and easy to sell to the media as a as a major step forward. Um, would Van der Sar be interested in working for Manchester United? I think definitely that is the case. Um, our friend, um, colleague, Jonathan Northcroft, um, interviewed Van der Sar for the Sunday Times in April. Um, and uh, he actually talked very favorably, favorably about Ed Woodward in that interview. He said, I have the utmost respect for him, what he does for the club. So I don't need to be the big man. I want to feel I contribute and you can only do it for something you believe in. United is a special place. Who knows eventually, but for the coming years, I'm here. Um, which I think, you know, if you read between the lines of what was an interview given um, while Ajax were on the, the were very close to reaching the final of the Champions League, which they probably deserved to reach, um, although they, they lost in the very final minutes and the semi-final to Tottenham. Read between the lines, he's, he's essentially saying, yes, I am interested. Um, I've got a lot of time for the club. And uh, Edward, don't worry, I'm not targeting your job. I'm quite happy to work in a, um, a, a different role from the one I have at Ajax. Um, 
where I can contribute something to Manchester United. So I think that he's, he was flagging up his interest there and therefore it comes as no surprise that United have pursued that. Um, and I've got to the stage that you're describing, which is to make him a, a substantial uh, contractual offer to come there. Um, what we will have to see is how true, I guess, he is to what he said in that interview, which is um, um, he's happy to be a part and would be happy to take the risk of ceding um, authority uh, in an area which he would be um, contractually, I guess, and also, more importantly, publicly responsible for um, as part of the condition of taking on that technical director, director of football role at Manchester United. Now, I've met, and I know you have as well, Duncan, uh, Edwin van der Sar on many occasions. I've interviewed him on many occasions, both at Fulham and Manchester United. And <clears throat> he strikes me as a very diplomatic, thoughtful, intelligent man. Um, I suspect the attraction to Manchester United and specifically Woodward on that is that he will be um, a non-confrontational risk with regard to if United continue their recruitment policy as they have done, which of course is under his uh, tutelage and with him having the final say. Um, I don't think that he could have that same um, assurance nor guarantee should they try to recruit a professional sporting director with a proven record at other clubs, in which, as you rightly point out, they've had the opportunity to do that and haven't even interviewed uh, people in that position. Um, I think he's, it, Woodward is, is relying on the status of the people that he has spoken to about this job, um, on the fact that they've got a good relationship with the Manchester United fans as legends of the club and therefore are less likely to upset the current uh, equilibrium by questioning publicly the club's policy in terms of recruitment. And of course, Woodward himself hopes to preserve and wants to preserve his own status and authority with regards to what happens in order he can then, of course, um, take the credit for what goes right and blame other people for what goes wrong, which appears to be uh, his modus operandi thus far in his position as executive vice chairman. With van der Sar, though, um, I, I suspect that he's not about to surrender authority. Um, he's been given great credit for the um, emergence uh, under his um, administrative role at Ajax for the younger players, which saw that team within, you know, as you said, minutes of a Champions League final last season. Um, I guess the problem that uh, Manchester United and Van der Sar have is that uh, even though he's an easy sell to the fans because he's associated with that team and their superstar young players like Franco de Jong, <clears throat> Matty de Ligt, um, Donny van de Beek, etc. Um, the Ajax Academy has, is, and most likely will in the near future, produce much greater quality and quantity of players than Manchester United's um, academy has, certainly, in the past 20 years. Therefore, there's no you know, magic wand that van der Sar brings with him to suddenly uh, improve Manchester United's uh, ability to bring through younger players or recruit better or anything else. Um, however, uh, given, I said, his association with such an exciting young team and such a successful young team, then he is a, quite an obvious choice and has said an easy sell to the fans, both as a former United player and somebody who's done a very, very good job in a 
position of authority in the boardroom. Yeah, I think so. I think if, if, if you give someone like Van der Sar his head in terms of allowing him to make radical changes to the football department, including the academy, then he has a blueprint um, and access to individuals who have been able to turn um, and, and refocus Ajax's academy in the way um, they have done in recent years. And, and remember, part of their strategy at Ajax was to accelerate the progress of their young talents into the first team and also then to sell them a story that um, you should stay a couple of extra years to succeed at Ajax before you move elsewhere. And that, that's been implemented very well. If you allow him to, to do something like that, um, and the, the second part of, of selling the story about re, uh, remaining at um, Manchester United shouldn't be an issue, um, you could get substantial improvements. But you know, Van der Sar would want, I would expect, the, um, the remit to be able to implement those things. And I think, you know, if you choose someone um, who has such a, a, a strong track record in football from his playing career, and then a, a substantial track record from his executive career, who will be financially independent. He doesn't need to take this job um, to look after himself uh, and, and has many years of his um, executive career ahead of him if that's what he chooses to, to carry on for the rest of his, his working career. Um, you're unlikely to have as much control over them. You're also, you, you, you have the danger of someone who is uh, intelligent and um, knows how to handle the media um, speaking out uh, if things go the wrong way um, because he feels it's better for the club to go in a different direction and, and his reputation is on the line. So I don't think it's as an easy an appointment or as safe an appointment from the perspective of, of Woodward's um, retaining control over key areas of the club, as it would be to go for one of the former players um, who has no experience in an executive role. I think you get a better um, candidate by taking Van de Sar, but maybe a, a more dangerous candidate if you're not prepared to hand over proper control, which all the indicators have been um, from the way they behaved last season. Um, even though they were briefing that the director of football was a priority and the way they've acted in conversations about the director of football role is that this new man is not going to have the same kind of authority as Bergiristan has at Manchester City, for example. I think there's definitely a sense of um, almost disbelief, um, certainly amongst uh, Manchester United fans and, and also around football administrators who I've been speaking to through the transfer window, after the transfer window, if the subject of Manchester United recruitment and director football comes up, um, the answer is always, this is one of the biggest clubs in the world. People must be falling over themselves to want that job. So why have they failed to appoint someone? Um, and I think the reason is, is exactly as you've outlined, Duncan, that is that it's not that they don't have lots of people who want the job. It's the people who... Uh, are right for the job in the eyes of one man. And that cuts down the opportunities and the options hugely with regards to who they recruit. And obviously, um, last thing I think Ed Woodward and probably Glazers want as well, is that to appoint someone who feels like he's constricted, 
uh, unable to do the job properly, resigns without an NDA and goes out and tells the world about just how, what shambles Manchester United are in terms of their technical and recruitment um, departments. Uh, and, of course, these are the things which have long been uh, both uh, evidential and suggested. And so uh, bad for the club, bad for the share price, and therefore um, unwelcome. So this has to be a very, very controlled appointment. And, of course, that's not going to be something which, given the current state of Manchester United and the start of the season they've had, that Manchester United fans will want to hear. Something else, Duncan, they might not want to hear is that uh, figures, probably the most accurate figures that are available to us um, with regards to transfer spend have now been published and um, probably not a big surprise about who comes first. Yes, this is the, um, the Sport CIES um, Football Observatory um, who have uh, is, uh, released their data on transfer spend in the, um, the last window and uh, over the last decade. Um, and the, the, the headline figure from, uh, from their analysis is that Manchester City now have the first um, billion euro squad in the history of football. So if you look at the total... Um, cost of uh, transfer fee commitments to assemble their current squad. Manchester City stands at 1.014 billion euros. Um, second place, um, Paris Saint-Germain, 913 million euros. So again, um, probably not a coincidence that the two uh, most expensive squads in football are both being assembled by nation-state-owned clubs, clubs who are owned by the royal families of uh, nation states and are owned for political, um, for uh, PR purposes, um, which are not um, economic exercises, um, have been criticised by the likes of Javier Tebas, um, the head of La Liga, for exactly those reasons, saying that they have um, caused uh, problems in the transfer market because of the way they spend which distorts um, pricing uh, and salary costs for other clubs because they don't have limitations on them in the sense that they, they have to break even as football clubs, as businesses. Um, their owners have been able to push huge amounts of their personal um, revenue into the club to set up the squads they have and the evidence that is there um, in those sports EIES figures. Um, Third, in terms of uh, cost, is Real Madrid. Um, who you'd, if you were looking from a football perspective, who you would expect to have the most expensive squad, it should be Real Madrid um, because they are uh, the club with the, the highest revenue over um, the last decade. They usually swap with Manchester United in that status, but I think Madrid have been, have had the, been the, the, the wealthiest club terms of revenue generated uh, for a, uh, for more of that recent period and obviously the um, depreciation and value of, the, of sterling has an effect there. Manchester United come in fourth at 751 million so uh, essentially three quarters of the, uh, the, the cost that Manchester City have spent to assemble their squad. Um, they've also done figures for gross transfer spend and net transfer spend in the last decade. Uh, Manchester City come top of both of those. 
their gross spend of city between 2010-2019 comes out at 1.638 billion euros. Now, to put that into context, if you go to the start of that period, um, the record transfer fee at that time was the £80 million that Real Madrid spent to take Cristiano Ronaldo from um, Manchester United to Madrid. And if you um, say that £80 million was the world record transfer fee at the beginning of that period, that spend of £1.6 billion equates to 18 Cristiano Ronaldo-sized transfers in the space of a decade, so almost two per season, um, which gives you a sense of what Abu Dhabi um, have done, what Qatar have done with PSG, but what particularly Abu Dhabi have done with Manchester City in terms of building the, um, the most expensive squad in the history of the game and the best squad in English football and one of the best squads in European football. Um, it's just it's a sustained period of spending on recruitment of players that has not been seen anywhere else in the game and has implications for every other um, major club in the game. Eating Cristiano Ronaldo's, you have to say, maybe it'd be more economic to buy Cristiano Ronaldo, get his genetic and DNA, <laughs> get the dolly the sheep people to clone Cristiano Ronaldo and just get 18 Cristiano Ronaldo's for your match day squad and you'd probably save yourself about half a billion quid. Don't suggest these things, Ian. Don't suggest these things. <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm, you know, I'm just putting it out there, you know. I'm sure Cristiano's pretty good as a goalkeeper as well. I'm sure he is. <laughs> um, now, given, and like, this is no shock, Duncan, you know, that, that City are the highest spends. At P- I, I'm slightly surprised that PSG have overtaken Barcelona and Real Madrid. Um, not shocked, but slightly surprised. What's the reaction of this going to be at the ECA, European Club Association, um, amongst all the big clubs? And by that, I mean the traditional superpowers of world football, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United, Liverpool, etc., etc., who have long been irksome and also scared of the spending power of both Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain. And of course... In context, we still have a financial fair play ruling waiting to be decided with regards to City and their spending and their sponsorship, uh, different uh, issues with that as well regarding how that counts towards their um, annual revenue, etc., etc. Are we going to see a backlash? Are we going to see more pressure exerted upon football authorities to try and rein in the spending of these two superpower stroke state-owned clubs in order that other clubs can then compete? I think, I think it's further evidence of what we've known uh, for a while and what people like Tebas have been, have been talking publicly about and, and uh, pressuring UEFA to take action against. Um, yes, uh, the, the major clubs, major clubs in ECA want something done about this. But they are leaving it to UEFA to um, apply the rules and uh, and punish Manchester City accordingly for breaking financial fair play rules and on an epic scale. Um, the evidence is there. A lot of the documentary evidence has been put out um, into the public domain. It's now, I think, 
a political exercise um, as to whether UEFA have the courage um, to hand down a, a Champions League ban. Um, that's what the major clubs in Europe want to see happen to City. They want to see them excluded from the Champions League as a punishment for breaking fundamental rules of participation in the Champions League. UEFA's calculation has to be, can we get this through our own um, jurisdiction without uh, making some kind of error which allows um, Manchester City to challenge it on a legal technicality and have the ban thrown out uh, by most likely the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, so they, they want their decision to be watertight um, and they want to avoid the dangers of uh, legal action which um, Manchester City have threatened in the past. Um, you know, there is documentary evidence of them talking about bringing UEFA um, into serious damage if they weren't prepared to back off the last time that they had these, um, they broke uh, financial fair play rules and were being sanctioned by UEFA. So that's, that's the big question mark here and that's what everyone is waiting upon. What does um, UEFA's uh, adjudicatory chamber decide is an appropriate punishment for uh, the infractions that have, have gone on at Manchester City. Um, and then once that decision is made, I think we'll see the next stage of, of where, this, where this goes. Now, as we know, though, any you know, mass sort of, in the case of football, um, you know, the, the publicity, the scrutiny, et cetera, et cetera, is always out there um, in terms of what clubs do, what players do, what managers do. Um, in the same way that is probably less applied in politics, especially these days. But often presentation supersedes substance with regards to the uh, the way that a club, in this case Manchester City, is perceived. Now, I think where City have been clever, Duncan, is that they've not exceeded any world transfer record in terms of, and of course, I know they have bought the most expensive defender, et cetera, et cetera, most expensive goalkeeper at different times. But they haven't gone and bought even Aiden Hazard this summer for 120 million euros, the way that Madrid have. They've not bought, you know, someone like Griezmann for 110. Their highest signing in terms of one spend remains Rodri at 64.7. Is that correct? Yeah, it's kind of in between uh, Bernardo Silva, Kevin De Bruyne, and yeah. Rodney were all around. Well, my point, my point being, Duncan, that they they haven't bought that superstar name, which puts them, you know, shoots them through the hundred million euro barrier that a lot of other clubs have. I don't disagree with you, and clearly the figures there are there to support it. They have spent more than a billion euros on their squad, but I think in terms of presentation and perception, they've done it very cleverly. They've assembled a team which functions as a team from players who look relatively cheap by the standards of people even like Harry Maguire um, in terms of the money paid by Manchester United from, from Maguire. So I guess, in a way, they've, they've been quite clever, I think, in the way that they've spent their money in terms of um, the investment they've made is to create a team in Guardiola's image a team of players who function as a team as well. There's not an individual superstar there who demands all of 
the um, star status, um, which most super clubs have. And so the perception of City probably and probably and wrongly, of course, regarding the actual facts of the spend is that they, spend, they do spend a lot of money, but they spend it well. There's no doubt they spend it well. There's no doubt they've been clever and strategic um, that they, they get value from their spend. And that's um, the contrast with the other nation state club, Paris Saint-Germain, is obvious. Um, the spend is, is <laughs> there's not a huge difference between the two in terms of uh, net spend. Manchester City over that 10 years, 1.091 billion, um, PSG 901 million, and uh, assemble assembled squad costs, so 1.014 billion Man City, PSG 913 million, so that's less than 10% difference between the two. Um, but Doug, do, do you, to, to interrupt, do you, do you have the full list? Can you give us an idea of where Liverpool, Manchester United, etc. come on that list, or do, do you have access to that? Yeah, the well, the assembled squad cost, it's Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain, Real Madrid 3, Manchester United 4, Juventus now 5th, which I think is an indicator. That's an interesting one. Yeah. Entis have spent in recent summers. Barcelona, sixth. Liverpool dropped down from fourth to seventh after their um, uh, well summer. Frugal, of frugal summer. Yeah. Chelsea still at eighth. Atletico Madrid nine. Arsenal ten. Okay, so we've got what four? Is that right? Four English clubs in the top ten. Um. Yeah. Manchester United. Five, Manchester City, Sorry, Manchester United, City, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal, yeah. Arsenal, and then Everton are the next. Really? Well, that's interesting. At almost five hundred million euros. And the, and so the deficit between City and United is what, Duncan? Roughly, I don't expect you to do the math off the top it's, of your uh, head. <laughs> it's Manchester United is about three quarters of the cost of Manchester City's squad. So, again, you see. The, the difference in effectiveness. You know, Manchester City are, are far ahead of Paris Saint-Germain, I think, in terms of um, quality as a team and, and uh, planning going forward and the, the path you can see for that squad. They're not better in terms of Champions League performance. Ironically, both of them have been very poor in the knockout rounds of, of, uh, of the Champions League so far. That's the one area where the spend hasn't um, translated into success yet, but Manchester City definitely way ahead. They, as you say, no world record transfer fee in there. They were close to doing that at the very, very start of the process, and that they had agreed a world record transfer fee to take Kaká from AC Milan, but Kaká refused to go there. Um, they've had various, as you say, um, record fees in terms of positional records and Premier League records. But also, as you say, from a presentational point of view, they are aware of and have absolutely highlighted in the, um, the chairman's uh, end-of-season interview uh, the argument that they don't have any um, world transfer records against their name. And they wanted to emphasise that from a PR perspective and that, you know, that end-of-season interview, which is very important to the club with Khaldun, Al Mubarak, who, remember, is one of the most influential politicians in Abu Dhabi, um, in a big, <laughs> affluent country, and happens to be the chairman of a English football club, which I think is, you know, the indicator here of what 
is really going on and how important Manchester City is to Abu Dhabi as a project, as a, as a nation state project, when you've got the, a senior politician from that country um, giving end of season interviews about what should actually not be a very important entity compared to the country itself, which is a, you know, an English Premier League football club. Well, Duncan, I've spoken to them. You are in regular contact with people in the city, people outside of the UK, indeed, potential investors and football clubs. There's always people um, with money hovering around who are looking to invest, especially in Premier League clubs where there's a guaranteed revenue from broadcast rights, etc., as well as um, the, filling the stadia and merchandise, marketing, sponsorship deals, et cetera, et cetera. One answer we always get, isn't it, to um, how many clubs in the Premier League are for sale, is every single one of them except Manchester City. Now, that suggests, and I don't think we're wrong in saying it, that this football landscape is nowhere near changing very soon because of effectively every Premier League club is available for the right price except Manchester City. It says that the nation-state of Abu Dhabi, Sheikh Mansour and his um, chairman at the club, Khaldun al-Mubarak, are here certainly for the long, the medium term. Uh, they don't need to sell, they don't want to sell, they see it as a project which brings success and reflects well on them, uh, both as individuals, as a royal family, as um, the state as well. So how do UEFA, how do other clubs try and level the playing field? We've already spoken about the idea that UEFA may well hand out a, a UEFA Champions League ban. That's still very much up in the air. But we do have the ECA who can um, put pressure on UEFA and indeed the members themselves can get together and say, right, this has to stop. It has to be moderated because this is no longer a level playing field. I think this is this is the opportunity. This is the test. You, those rules have been put in place. Um, they were put in place to reduce the level of debt at top level football and make um, football more financially sustainable. Something that they've achieved, but they also um, put a limit on um, what had previously been limitless investment, essentially limitless investment. So the idea was you prevent someone or someone or something coming into a club, buying a club and just saying, we're going to throw more money at this than uh, the revenues of other major clubs combined because we want to, to win these competitions. And, and the limitation is you have to do, you can only spend within the scope of your revenue with lots of caveats about spending on academy, um, spending on stadium infrastructure, spending on women's football, etc. But the, the basic message was there is a limit on how much you can invest in a team over a certain period of time. Um, if this falls through, if UEFA don't manage to punish Manchester City in a way that satisfies um, other ECA clubs, I think that's basically the end of financial fair play um, because it will have been perceived as having two opportunities um, to significantly rein in the spend of a nation-state-owned club and failing on two occasions to do so. So why should anyone else take it seriously going forward? In the background to this, of course, is 
um, kind of global football politics in that there is a move for a European Super League um, and UEFA are fighting with FIFA and other bodies to retain control over that Super League. Um, and Manchester City are part of the calculations of a Super League. So they have a, a, an extra card to play, if you like, in the sense that um, they can drive uh, and pressure UEFA into uh, the, the fear of losing the European Champions League, which is the big cash cow for UEFA. Um, and that there would be an alternative structure, which UEFA are excluded from, which Manchester City are part of, uh, which other major clubs in Europe are part of, and perhaps the major clubs in Europe, some of them, are more attracted to the idea of a, a European Super League than they are to the carrying on under the current structure and seeing Manchester City reined in within that current structure. All of these are, are extra elements that are in play here and are under consideration um, as we wait to see what UEFA will do in terms of punishing for financial fair play transgressions. I wonder, Duncan, um, how Manchester City would feel if um, a move was made to uh, leave UEFA and Champions League history behind. And with, of course, the history of it being the European Cup before they changed the format and the name, before they managed to win it. <laughs> and instead, moved to some kind of FIFA or individually uh, private equity-based um, sorry, funded uh, league of of champions, um, which would, of course, generate much more money for the clubs themselves. But I suppose in that sense, uh, Manchester City would be able to fulfil um, financial fair play that didn't exist much better <laughs> because there'd be yeah. more money for them. Yeah, I mean, you, you make a good point about private equity funding. Imagine if the private equity funding was to come from Abu Dhabi or Saudi Arabia. Um, for substantial amounts of that new tournament, which has been suggested um, for and is actively in play for the FIFA Club World Cup, um, that money would come from Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia, to help fund a new um, global tournament with the biggest names in football, which would be a major television draw. Are you, take, are you talking warm balls in the draw bag? <laughs> <laughs> If it was coming from UAE or Qatar? Well, not necessarily. The point is that um, there is money uh, to be put into the game which can go beyond the clubs themselves. You know, that the investment from nation states in football doesn't have to be purely in um, Paris Saint-Germain or Manchester City. We have a World Cup in Qatar because of a huge investment um, by a nation state in bringing football's premier um, competition to the Middle East for the first time. Um, and we saw what that did to FIFA. Uh, I think we can see how it was achieved. Um, it's this, the, the influence is not, the influence of large amounts of capital in football is not limited to individual clubs. So from the fascinating politics of the geopolitical view of football to a small town north of London, Watford Football Club became the first to sack their manager this season in the Premier League. Um, others obviously changed manager before 
the league began, but Javi Gracia, um, whom we have praised Duncan on many occasions for the job he's done at Vicarage Road, uh, became the first casualty um, of this season, having got only one point from the first opening round of matches. I saw uh, Watford on the opening day, beaten 3 by Brighton and Hove Albion. I was at that match and I was shocked by how soft they were, especially in comparison to the start they had last season where they won the first four games um, under Javi Grassi and obviously went on to reach the FA Cup final. Now, first of all, Duncan, we had uh, Kevin Affleck and um, Ben Foster on with us in pre-season um, from Watford talking about their pre-season and what uh, Javi Gracia did to improve and update and make more progressive his um, way of working um, ahead of this new season. It, obviously, in terms of results, seems to have backfired and certainly not worked for him. But do we think this was a bit premature, given what, he's, what he achieved last season? Well, I think it caught a lot of people by surprise. I think it caught Gracia by surprise, and I think it caught his players by surprise. Um, when you mentioned Ben Foster, as you say, Ben Foster was very positive about Gracia on that episode of the podcast when he you know, kindly came um, on to speak to us for, in some detail about um, Watford's pre-season in Austria. Um, he actually uh, tweeted on, on Saturday about the dismissal and he said, uh, wow, football moves fast, eh? Thanks to Javi and his coaching staff, great guys and great coaches. Last season was memorable. Um, so that's a very positive comment about um manager who's been dismissed. Um, so well, that, that implies, Duncan, that, that he has not, inverted commas, lost the dressing room. Not certainly not what I was hearing. I mean, I have talked to someone close to Gracia about um, what had happened there, what happened over the summer, and um, he identified that there, there was an issue from Gracia's perspective, not so much in the recruitment, but in the failure to trim the squad down. Um, so he said that if you look at Watford, they have a, a squad, a senior squad of 29, um, players. Um, I think they have three left-backs, three right-backs, four goalkeepers. Um, the point he was making is it's, it's actually quite hard for a coach when you have such a, a deep squad because you've, you've basically got half your squad not involved in match day uh, matters and uh, you're going to have a certain number of disgruntled players because they're not getting football. Uh, so it makes it harder to coach from that perspective. Garcia, known for not being demanding in the transfer market, he's not a coach who would go and say, I want this player, I want that player. Um, he did, interestingly, um, when asked about their record transfer and their biggest transfer of the summer, I think uh, ahead of their second game, Ishmael Asar, um, he did say to the media I'd never, he'd never spoken to Saar before the deal was done. And I think that's a, there's a, an indication there of, of some issues um, in terms of the, whether the coach um, would want to be more involved in that transfer. You, you've also got Danny Welbeck coming in as a free agent um, as their other major attacking signing of the summer and that deal only being done at the very last minute, which does seem odd given that you're dealing with a free agent and you could have had him in at the beginning of pre-season and properly integrated into the 
into the squad uh, going forward. So there's some issues there, but um, also talking to someone from uh, who knows Watford well, uh, he pointed out that the, the Pozo family, they don't hesitate when they decide that change is required and they get their replacements lined up um, while they're making a final decision on, on whether to change. And, you know, they've done that in bringing Kike Sanchez Flores back to the club, who had a very good uh, season with Watford, um, although albeit he was um, dispensed with at the end of it because of issues between him and the uh, the ownership. Um, I think we have to look back at how Gracia um, was given a very long-term contract. It's a story we, we talked about in depth on the, on the podcast last year. Um, a four-and-a-half-year contract with a three-year option. And, and that was very much, as we told you at the time, it was Watford trying to make a statement and saying we're, we're finished with this um, rapid turnover of managers that we've been associated with. We want to invest in this individual and give him an extraordinarily long contract by Premier League standards. We told you at the time that part of that was um, that they saw value in Gracia and a potential transfer of their manager. So by giving him the long-term contract, they put a, a large buyout clause should uh, another Premier League or a foreign club um, try to hire him. And he was a candidate, a strong candidate for the, the Chelsea position over the summer. Um, and they also, in that contract, they, they put a rescission clause, which so this it, it has cost them more to sack Gracia than it would have done in normal circumstances because of the long-term contract. But they're not paying a huge, the huge sum of money that um, that four-and-a-half stroke, seven-and-a-half-year contract would imply. They have um, controlled their costs there to a certain extent. Um, and I think, you know, Gracia, it, it's maybe not the worst way for him to go in the sense that I think the perspective in football is he's been quite harshly done by. Um, there's been, you know, you see the surprise from the players, you see the surprise from, from people externally. Um, he, he has the status of what he achieved in keeping Watford up in the Premier League in his first um, half season at the club and in, you know, the excellent performances for much of last season, taking them to the, the FA Cup final. Um, Two big Spanish clubs tried to hire him in the summer, um, Sevilla and Betis. So I don't think it will be too long before we see Gracia back at a, a significant club. And um, it might, might not be so bad for him that uh, he, was, he went in a way that's perceived as being unfair um, and uh, not representative of his, of his achievements at the club, as opposed to had he... Um, stayed on there with whatever issues there are within the, the squad. Um, I think you've got a number of senior players who expected to be sold in the summer and weren't sold, and that isn't a great situation to manage. Had he carried on and results not picked up, then perhaps the perception would have been different in that he brought it on upon himself, which I don't think that's the case, and I don't think that's the perception either at present. Well, outside of my sympathy for Javi Garcia himself, who I always found, I think, to be a very competent um, coach as well as someone who um, deserved probably more time, I, I think. But then again, the Pozzo family have a history of not necessarily giving a lot of time, was to not see the headline written anywhere about Watford coach sack manager and replace him with manager sacked by Watford. 
Um, that would be very, I think, a skillful way of putting in Kiki Sanchez Flores as the new coach. However, um, Duncan Kiki had his chance before at Watford, had one season. It has to be said, his win um, percentage is lower than Javi Gracia's. Uh, he's since spent almost two seasons at Espanyol, one at Shanghai Shenoa. Not exactly been successful in either of those jobs. Um, do we think this is an upgrade on Javi Gracia, or is it just the Pozzo family going back to what they know? I don't think it's an upgrade. I think um, everyone I talk to about Gracia emphasises how hard-working, diligent, competent he is, popular um, with his players in the sense that they know where they are and they, they respect the training regime he implemented. I think Kike Sanchez-Flores is a good coach. Um, probably definitely not reached the heights that people expected him to reach in his career. Um, I think the comparison, direct comparison with Gracia in terms of um, win success while he was at Watford is unfair because he took a team that had just gone up into the Premier League and um, had been quite aggressively restructured in the, the window um, ahead of their first season. So it was a harder job and he didn't have the the quality, the same quality of personnel as Garcia had. Um, he, I, I think, I think um, Sanchez Flores is a good coach and I think he, um, he was successful in the Premier League um, because he's tactically adept um, at setting out systems that make it difficult for the opposition to play um, and a good extracting results from that kind of um, uh, proper preparation for games. That might be a bit harder to do now in the Premier League. You might not get quite as much an advantage from that as he did and because more of the coaches have gone down that, that route and there's more analysis, there's more opposition scouting, etc. Um, but then you also have the, the sort of shift towards um, teams trying to play Guardiola-style football who don't have um, the, the technical resources to do so. And, and you could see someone like Sanchez Flores taking advantage of those opponents. And, you know, Watford, they, they've only taken one point from the first four games, but they have a good squad uh, as demonstrated from last season. We are only four games into the season. Um, it's he doesn't have to do anything particularly spectacular to keep them in the division. Um, just return them to something like what their average form has been over the last few seasons uh, would be sufficient. So um, not a bad appointment for him uh, and an opportunity for him to to come back into the Premier League and and um, be in the shop window um, for uh, bigger jobs if he does um, a good a good, good job at Watford and you know we've seen um, a number of Watford coaches make steps up um, after doing good jobs there so it's not it's not a bad job to have I think and um, it being Monday uh, if I'd allowed Duncan to uh, take the villains uh, section of uh, Monday's heroes and villains he may well have nominated the Pozzo family for the uh, sacking of However, I have managed to take that one for myself and I'm going to give you my villain of the last few days first in the knowledge that Duncan has probably one of the best heroes, uh, certainly of the new season, that's for sure, in the transfer 
Window podcast. So you, some of you may have seen the story about what happened in Stade de France uh, last weekend when the European Championship qualifier uh, between France and Albania got off to the worst possible start when the Albanian national anthem was supposed to be played, as ever, you know, it's the statutory way of introducing any game. And in fact, the um, public announcer managed to play the national anthem of Andorra. Now, I don't know if many of you have been to Albania. I can say that I have. And when I was there covering the games several years ago, there were army snipers on top of the stands just in case anyone got out of order. I would not mess with any Albanian. I certainly would not play the national anthem of Andorra when the Albanian anthem is supposed to be playing. If you see the looks of dismay and anger on the Albanian players' faces, you'll know what I mean. Now, this man then, he just made it all worse for himself because having been told or realising his mistake, he then apologised to the visiting fans for who he called the Armenian fans (laughs) for, for not playing the correct anthem. So only to play the Andorran national anthem for Albania, he then called Albanian Armenians. Now, that's like calling... Rangers fans, Catholics, like calling Manchester United fans, Scousers, not not to be recommended. So I give you the villain of the past few days. Whoever you are at Stade de France, I'm sure you've no longer got a job. Duncan, for it's over to you for today's hero. I just think I've got to ask first um, why the Albanian army sniper missed you when you got out of order in the stadium, Ian. Because <laughs> I was too quick. <laughs> Even for a bullet. <laughs> I, I must say, if I was there now, I don't, I'm not sure I'd be that quick anymore. It was about 14 years ago. Yeah, I was going to say, having played a game of football with you, the, the speed obviously deteriorated subsequent to that visit. To uh, listen, hey, come on. Were you, are you quicker now sprinting you were 20 years ago? That's all I'm asking. I, well, we, we do remember that your quickest movement of the game was to grab the ball when the penalty was given against Jose Mourinho. In the- and I did score! <laughs> That's the main thing. I'm not Paul Pogba, you know. <laughs> hero, of, hero of the week. Um, I'm going to have to go uh, Graham Hunter here. I'm going to go full Graham Hunter with the um, accurate quote, um, which comes quote to say of Simon Pia, who, um, who recalls the story of Sir Alex Ferguson uh, attending Pat Stanton's 75th birthday do at the weekend. Um, and uh, was asked his advice about um, for people going into management. And Sir Alex's advice was, you've got to have, got to have a good f***ing chairman. Dick Donald made me, said Sir Alex Ferguson. So there you go. Um, and uh, maybe uh, that's a, a little discreet message to Willie Gunnar Solskjaer about um, what's important about being Manchester United manager. We love it. Even in Heroes, he still gets a dig in it, Ed. Uh, sensational. Slax Bergson, we salute you for um, both your candour and your ability to swear at Pat Stanton's 75th birthday. Uh, many congratulations to Pat and to Sir Alex for getting there to help celebrate. Um, now, hope you enjoyed today's podcast as much as we have in bringing it to you. Uh, if you did, then please give something back. As usual, get yourself on iTunes, give us a five-star review. We can expand that community. Please continue the debate with us um, on at Transfer Podcast, our Twitter handle, and at Duncan Castles or at GarboSJ individually for Duncan and I. Now, um, 
we will be back on Wednesday with your questions answered. So this is just another um, klaxon for you guys. You know how much we love to um, engage with you and take your questions and answer them as best we can. So please get those questions into at Transfer Podcast or indeed our individual Twitter accounts as I have just recounted. That's all for now. Uh, we will see you through the transfer window on Wednesday. Um, thanks for listening. Thank you.